Oh, Father, we pray this morning as your church, as those who stand forgiven at the cross of Christ, recipients of salvation through the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross at Calvary in his shed blood, apply it as atonement for our sins. We are your church. We are your bride, the very household of God, and we delight to praise you and to proclaim you this morning, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And I will ask that we open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. Some of this will, of course, be review, and uh, some, I hope, will be a new and fresh way to look at some of these very important verses on the subject of the glorification of creation. We spoke of the glorification of the saints, and we'll speak this morning of the glorification of creation. And so I'm going to read again for you this morning, verses 18 through 23. So follow along. I read from the New King James. And so the apostle writes these words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. O oh, Father, in Jesus' name, let all these things be true. Let, let us rejoice in this great revelation of the glorification that all those who love you will take part in, in its time, in your time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we'll begin this morning I'm, uh, from verse 19 where Paul wrote, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly wakes. Creation expects things. Who knew? I'll tell you who knew. Every pagan cult in history knew that. There is a connection between man and nature. It's always been there. It's obvious and I say it, every pagan cult throughout history has recognized that connection. So what's the problem with paganism? It's because every aspect of the creation in the pagan mind is deity. And man is brought up out of a pre-existent earth. You look for any fable, any myth of any culture throughout history, all throughout the Middle East, the Sumerian epics, Mesopotamia, the Greeks, the Romans in Europe, all the way to the Aztecs and the Mayans of this hemisphere, and they all will have some form of a creation story. And in many ways, it will reflect the true story. What will be the difference? The Hebrew story is the only one where God pre-existed the earth that he called into being. God pre-exists everything else that exists. Matter does not pre-exist God. In the Greek story, the earth is there, the waters are there, and Kronos, the god of that tradition, is born out of the pre-existent waters of the earth. But only in the Hebrew story, only in the true story of creation, is God just there throughout infinity and calls the earth into being by fiat. And that has nothing to do with an Italian car. <laughs> fiat means by decree. 
and he calls everything into existence ex nihilo. Latin's great, isn't it? Ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God doesn't need stuff to make stuff. He makes his own. That's the difference between paganism and Christianity, and I would say of Judaism as well. That's the difference. God is there before his creation, standing apart from it. God is not his creation. He's not identifiable with his creation. We don't pray to the sun or to the moon as pagans do. We don't pray to the God of the, of the land and of the waters as the ancient Egyptians did. We pray to the God of all creation who created all things, and that's the difference. And so I wanted to say that to you as a precursor this morning to this idea that creation and man is tied together because in the Christian tradition we're tied together in a right and wholesome way before God. So I intend to teach on this subject this morning from the Apostle's words. It's a truth that it seems to me is largely forgotten, and if it's not forgotten, then it seems to me that it's ignored. Maybe even by us. Maybe I should plead guilty uh, as to that charge. But I mean it's ignored by the church in general. When's the last time you heard something preached about creation being remade? I'll tell you who focuses on this a lot. Did you ever get those little magazines from the Jehovah's Witnesses that come out? They focus all the time on, on the, the lion being led by the little child and playing with the snakes. And there's no more uh, animosity between the, the animals and man in the, new, in the new earth. And they speak of those things. But uh, I say for the most part it's ignored, or at least it seems to be, or at least it's, on a, it's not on a plane with the things that we want to concern ourselves with. We're very concerned about the things of this life. Have you noticed that? We can get consumed with the politics of the day, for one thing. But as he said in, in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed. So what does that say to me? Focus on the glory which will be revealed rather than on the sufferings of the moment and be lifted out of that by this very comforting and uh, empowering look at the future that we all share as sons and daughters of God. And so this great truth has to do with our connection with nature, and that is with all of God's creation. It has to do with the full effect of the resurrected body of Christ and the ultimate glorification of the saints. It's the real reason why we should set our minds on things above and not things of the earth, because the earth as we know it is temporary and is passing away. And the New Testament is replete with verses to that effect. Because the earth as we know it is passing away. We read this from Colossians. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Friends, resurrection is a wonderful reality. It seems we focus on it more when times are tough or when we feel really sick or when we're really not doing so well in life. It's like, oh, Lord, come quickly. But really, it's something that we always need to yearn for and hope for. It's a wonderful reality as it is. But yet, it's still a developmental aspect of our final outcome. Resurrection's just the beginning. In a sense, we're already resurrected. Our spirits are not going to experience death. Glorification, as we've seen from last week's teaching, is the final stage of regeneration. Regeneration refers to the new birth. You're born again. You've already, your salvation is secured, but you're not glorified yet. In other words, we walk around this world almost invisible to the world and to some extent to each other as to whether or not we are candidates for glorification. And so we read today from our text that the truth that the church ignores, it's not ignored by creation. Creation's longing for this moment, even though we long for it intermittently. 
Even creation sets its sight on things above, on things that are promised. The whole created order, Paul tells us, eagerly waits. Eagerly waits. They, creation longs for and hopes for the fulfillment of the promise of Christ in this regard. And when did he give the promise? Back in the Garden of Eden. The same time he gave the curse. I'll get to that. The whole created order eagerly waits. Creation endures the travailing pains of a new birth waiting for its fulfillment. In other words, creation is pregnant with this hope. It waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation groans, Paul says, and we groan with it because we are tied to the creation. The sons of God are in the earth. Here we are. And we're gathered here with some of the most beloved members of the children of God that each of us knows, I would hope. And we rejoice in the new birth, which we all share. And if you don't share that, you need to see someone afterwards and confess your sins before God and your faith in Christ and receive the new birth. But we praise God for the spiritual change that he's already wrought in our lives, in our very being. And so it's true. We've been changed, friends. We've been saved. Those are the already part of salvation. We've been changed and we've been saved. We've been granted access to God and invited into his presence. That's why we can take prayer requests and know that when we do it, God takes pity on us and has compassion for us and shows us mercy and healing and all the blessings that he has promised. But what we have not been yet is glorified. We await that. That's the final stage. To be glorified, friends, is to be revealed. That's when it's made known. That's when you don't have to go around and tell people what you believe. They'll see it in your glorified existence. Now, the Apostle John, who's no stranger to mysterious revelation, writes confidently of this thing. He wrote in his first letter, Beloved, now we're the children of God, but it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now we're the children of God, but something else is going to be revealed in us. The fullness of being the child of God. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so we're saved in the here and now, friends. But that's only the beginning. When we die, our spirits go to God. Paul writes this, we're confident Yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Remember, you're a spirit, friends. You have a soul and you live in a body. Remember that connection. The Baptist Confession speaks of this very thing, and it, and it says this. The bodies of men after death return to dust and undergo corruption, which is decomposition, right? We've seen it. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness. Do you understand this progression as we go through it? The body and soul are two different entities, and the body is part of this cursed earth through the sin of Adam and will undergo corruption. To dust you shall return that will be fulfilled, but not of your spirit, only of your body. For the soul neither slumbers nor sleeps. Hallelujah. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and received into paradise. That reminds me when I read paradise, because you don't see the word a lot. Jesus said that to the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. If he had a watch, he might have said, an hour from now you'll be with me in paradise. And I don't mean to make light of that. The souls of the righteous will be made perfect in holiness and received into paradise where they are with Christ and look upon the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. I love those passages from Revelation where it says, and the sea will give up their dead. And the sea will give up their dead. No, nobody that's lost and dead will be lost from God in the resurrection. They'll come from all kinds of different places. So our spirits go to God when we die and our bodies go into the earth. But they go there temporarily. See, even your body is important to God. It is not just nothing. And at the last trump, 
They are recalled. It's the King, Ver King James Version way of saying trumpet. They just say trump. No political thing extended there. They are rejoined with our spirits. The body's glorified by Christ as his body is glorified. Christ is already glorified. We know that. He came back in a glorified state, right? And notice, when he came back in a glorified state, he still had wounds that were healing. And when that happens, friends, when Christ shows himself to us, we become glorified by the sight of it. As I said last week, it's contagious. We sort of catch it when we see it. And glorified is perfected. Wouldn't it be nice to have a perfect body? I remember I used to have one. <laughs> I didn't, but you think that when you're young and invincible, right? Glorified is perfected. We're given our place again in the earth. Friends, we don't float around on clouds playing harps. I hope we know that. You know, there's so many myths about the resurrection. It's like, oh, we'll see each other again. I don't really know if we see each other. I assume we will. But there's millions, maybe billions of people who'll be there. You might be lost in the crowd. You know? I told you my illustration of Mardi Gras lost in the crowd, so many people around. I mean, hopefully there'll be plenty of land. You'll go in and out and find pasture, it says, right? <laughs> You're not going to be crowded in. But um, I don't, we don't really know all the details of this. But let me tell you this. It isn't about seeing each other again. It isn't about, oh, God's looking down now, and he's seeing the dearly departed. You know, it's not about that. We're in heaven because we want to be in the presence of Christ who died for us and saved us. Everything else, you know, there's no marriage in heaven. You don't need to be. We're all, they, there's a picture in Revelation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church is the wife of God. We're married to the Lamb of God. It's a wonderful picture. And then we're given our place in the earth again. And when that happens, when the glorified sons of God are revealed and are manifested, the earth rejoices in its own glorification. And the earth is remade. You know, we look out there and we see the earth and we say, what grandeur, what wonder. It's, it's corrupt. It's not as wonderful and clear as it was intended to be. And if you haven't noticed, the earth is at war with itself. Everything eats the other thing, right? Tornadoes and hurricanes and poison ivy and mosquitoes. I don't know if there'll be mosquitoes in the new world, but I do know they won't bite you, and I know that for a fact because you won't have any blood. <laughs> the heavens and the earth are renewed in their time, but first the sons of God must be revealed. And the Jewish personification of this. The Hebrew way of looking personifies all of creation as though creation itself, the rocks and trees and hills, have feelings and hopes and dreams for the future and are relying on an uttered promise to them eons ago. First Christ is glorified and we follow after him as John wrote. And then creation follows after us and creation cannot wait. So for a time, though we're saved, though we're assured of our salvation, though we may expect a future glorification, we yet remain invisible to the world. They can't see us, friends. What's so holy about you? That's their view. I knew you. I know the stuff you do. Your brothers and sisters know all your sins. Mm -hmm. It's always a wonderful moment when they tell you that. Um, and the thing to do is say, don't judge me. The thing to do is say, oh, you don't know the half of it. That's only part of the sin I have. It's so great, only Christ could save someone like me. That's the way you answer that, because they're right. So for a time, though we're saved, though we're assured of our salvation, there's a future step to the whole process. It's called glorification. And we should all remember that when God created the world and everything in it, he took a moment to step back. Don't you remember this? Those of you who were in the Thursday night study, we talked about this. God stepped back as any great artist looks at the work he has just created, and he looks with a paternal fondness. He's the father creator of all things. And he stepped back, and he saw that it was good indeed. It was all very good. 
God made man and informed him that he had also made everything for the service of man. Eden was a wonderful place. But you know something? Evil Eden wasn't impenetrable. Lies were able to creep in. That won't happen in the new heavens and the new earth, as I demonstrated you from the revelation of Christ to John last week. God made man and informed him that he had also made everything for the service of man. All things were in place to ensure that the man was bereft of no good thing. There was no lack in Eden. You didn't have to gather up. You just had to go out each day and pluck it afresh. He, in fact, man, in fact, was provided with an abundance of every good thing that the Lord had made. And so man was inextricably bound to creation. You like that word? Inextricably. You can't untangle him from creation. The sun was there to warm the man. The herbs were there to nourish him. The woman was there to complete him, praise God. And so from the very beginning we read this, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day, and then God rested. And notice the Hebrew uh, calendar there. Days begin at evening and go from evening to evening, right? Rome changed all that. We now live from dawn to dawn. So friends, indeed, nature was the home and the playground of the human race. Eden was his backyard, friends. He didn't have to mow it. He didn't have to weed it. He didn't have to wear his poison ivy protection or his, his deet or his off. In the summer, I have to put that on my ankles. It gets very, uh, gets very buggy. I don't know why they like ankles, but it seems they do. Eden was his backyard, friends, and his backyard was beautiful, and his yard was safe. It was health-giving. It was life preserving. And so it was all very, very good, and God himself said so. And so what this apostle is telling the Romans is that though man has largely forgotten this blessed harmony with the natural world, the natural world has not forgotten it. It even longs for it and eagerly awaits for it. Can't we at least be as spiritual as the trees and the oceans and the mountains? So there's a process, friends, and it goes like this. We are, we share rather, a blessed union with Christ. I have developed this over the weeks. The union with Christ is depicted in Scripture in several ways. One is he is the vine, we are the branches. Remember that? He is the building, we are the stones that make up the building. He is the head, we are the body, right? And even the marriage bond to some degree. He is the husbandman and we are the bride. We are in union with Christ. The two have become one. There's this great union. What happens to him happens to us. We're joint heirs with Christ, partakers of his glory. So there's a process. We have this union with Christ. We died with him. The apostle assures us we will also rise with him. You don't have to worry. You will not experience death. I've told you many times, death is like taking off your coat. Our resurrection from the dead is guaranteed, for we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then Paul says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Amen. He is first, we follow after. He's glorified, we will be glorified. And glorified is perfected, and glorified is invincible, and glorified is immortal. We all die once for all, and then, and then the judgment, it actually says. Um, and just as we have to wait to see our Lord and Savior face to face with the blessed hope of becoming glorified in that moment, as John assures that we will, so creation must wait in turn for the sons of God to be glorified. Every day when you go out on your lawn, the grass is looking up saying, he's not glorified yet. And all the blades are talking to each other. <laughs> and they all have their view of eschatology. Some of the grass is pre-mill. <laughs> no. 
I think I'm taking it a little too far, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, because in the Reformed churches, we all know the grass is our mill. <laughs> but the Apostle Paul appeals to this thoroughly Hebrew way of thinking, friends. This is not new. This is not entirely pagan, right? Even though paganism shares some of these things about the personification of trees and rocks, right? But this is entirely Hebrew. This is the personification of creation. We read this from Isaiah. For you shall go out with joy, be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You know, I have to tell you, most of you have been to my house. We've had outdoor gatherings and stuff. I have a big grassy area out back. But just beyond that is the swamp, and then there's the briars and the thorns. And you throw all the grass clippings in there. You just get it out of the way. And, every, and it keeps wanting to beat its way back into the, into the manicured part of the yard, and you have to beat the thorns back. You won't have to do that in the new world. Thorns weren't supposed to be there. Men weren't supposed to get th- stuck with them, Right? The thorn shall come up, the cypress, it says. So these, these things that afflict us in nature today will conform to something beautiful and useful to the man, right? And Isaiah goes on and he speaks of the harmony in nature today. I hope you know nature is at war with itself. It's called the ecosystem, right? Big fish eat the little fish, the little fish eat the littler fish. And it goes on down the line, right? But we read this of the future time from Isaiah. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. He used to lie down and eat the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Spellcheck hated the word fatling. That's the young calf. That's the veal. They ate veal. And a little child shall lead them. All of these things in harmony together. The predator and the prey are no longer predator and prey. The cow and the bear shall graze. Imagine the bear in your backyard grazing. Today they graze on the cow. Then they'll graze on the grasses and the leaves. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. So eat your meat now. (laughs) He speaks of the whole created order as having longings as we have longings, as having hopes as we have hopes, as groaning in pain as we groan in pain, but also with all the longing and all the groaning, there is this sense of striving, striving, and there's a joy in the anticipation of its coming. What coming? The revealing of the sons of God. As we wait for the coming of Christ, creation waits for the coming of glorified man, and we shall hear creation sing. What a song that will be. MacArthur writes this, Apocaradokia. That's the word for anxious longing in the verse. It's an especially vivid word, he writes, that literally refers to watching with outstretched head and suggests standing on tiptoes. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like creation and the trees are in a crowd, in a parade, and they're standing up looking for what's going on, striving to see the coming of the sons of God in the great parade. With eyes looking ahead, with intent expectancy, creation is standing on tiptoes, as it were, as it waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. You know, it's interesting. You know, as I went through Romans, I often quoted from the commentaries of Martin Lloyd-Jones, great thinker that he is. Uh, MacArthur's commentaries are replete with quotations from Martin Lloyd-Jones, even lengthy quotations. And this thing about the tiptoes comes right from Lloyd-Jones. But imagine the moment when the children of God are revealed. What a moment it will be. We'll look at each other in a different way. Who knew you really looked like that? 
We know inwardly who we are and what we believe and to whom we owe our lives. We know that now. But the world cannot know this about us. It cannot see that glory in us. The world cannot see us. We have, have no fear, though, friends, because the world could not see him either. The world didn't know Jesus was different and special, right? He came, Isaiah prophesied, he would come, not comely, but as any man, not particularly noticeable. According to Isaiah, it actually said, not particularly handsome or good-looking or attractive. Um, The world couldn't see Christ either. His glory was on hold just as ours is on hold. Now, we know that he revealed it to the inner circle. You remember he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, we call it, up in the northern regions beyond Israel. Peter and James and John were there. And for a moment, he revealed himself in his glory, remember? And those who were with God, Elijah and Moses, were also in their glory. There's something to take a look at. But he did that. He revealed himself so John could later write to us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We saw his glory. Now, we're in that constant prophetic struggle between the already and the not yet. Your glorification, the glorification of all of creation, is absolutely as reliable as the fact that you're sitting here saved now. Now you're the children of God, but you'll be something more glorious later. So there's the now, and the, but it has not yet been seen, revealed what we shall be. So there's the now, there's the already, and there's the not yet, part of our fulfillment. And prophecy speaks that way. And you have to get used to it if you're going to understand it. But human eyes have no clue as to what's in store for the sons of God. They think we're quaint. Some people think we're maybe nice. Oh, it's good. They're so traditional. I love the Amish and their cheeses and things. And, you know, they think it's all that's wonderful. They drive their little cabbies and wear their little hats, you know, and they see us that way. I think. I think the world sees us very quaint. And, um, you know, they do so, such good things. And they, and they do have nice families. Let's all admit it. The kids aren't all tattooed and pierced like ours. And um, I threw that in. And so they see us in a, in just, I think, sort of a quaint way until I really think we're in a time when the world is really ready to finally get rid of God. And anyone that contends with that needs to be gotten rid of also. There's been other precedents in history where that has happened. And I would not be surprised to see as evil gets confronted in this life that it really rears its fangs. And I think we're coming for some kind of a showdown in our time. So human eyes have no clue as to what's in store for the sons of God, and so they're happily ignorant of it. They don't even want to hear about it. They'll laugh at you when you tell them. The church, it seems to me, has an intellectual assent to the promise, but prefers to fret the imperfections of the world, to bemoan the state of society, rather than to rejoice in the fact that every human effort to redeem this world will fail. That doesn't mean we don't stop trying. That doesn't mean we don't stop trying to reap souls for the kingdom. All of those things are done. The gospel is as important for those who will never believe it to hear it as it is for those who get saved. Because God will be glorified. And when they say, you never told me, he'll point out the day. But the sons of God will be revealed by the Son of God. Hence the groaning. Hence the striving. Hence the labor pains. It's a climactic moment worth waiting for in every saint, those who are alive when he reveals us, us, and those who have died in faith will all rejoice together. We will be the church triumphant and full of glory. Paul wrote of it. He said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Ignorance, friends, is not a virtue. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Friends, we don't sorrow in death the way the world sorrows. And if we do, we ought to straighten that out before God and get back to this doctrine. Those people that died in Christ are with Christ, and they are better off than we are. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Death in the New Testament is often spoken of as sleep. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive 
and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, with a shout, with a voice, with a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first because they can hear the shout and the voice and the trumpet. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So be comforted today with those promises. We will be with the Lord. It says in the clouds, while the earth is replaced, we stand back in the clouds with the Lord, and we are forever with the Lord in the remade earth. Remember, when the apostle refers to labor, friends, which is the unmistakable sign of birth, it's only for a moment. It's the precursor to joy, which every parent knows. I would say every mother, but fathers know it too. Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, you will weep and lament. It's, it's difficult for us not to sorrow. It's difficult. There's so much to sorrow over in this life. You will weep. You will lament. But the world will rejoice. That's when you know, that's when you know your weeping's not in vain. When the world is happy that the church is sad, you'll know this is coming about. But your sorrow will be turned to joy. And the joy of those who took joy in your sorrow will be turned to sorrow. A woman, he says, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, listen to this, she no longer remembers the anguish, except those of you mothers who say to your children, I had great pains bringing you into the world, and this is how you repay me. So don't do that. She no- <laughs> Yeah, see? Kids know. You no longer remember the anguish. Isn't that awesome? All the anguish that the world has known. It will no longer be remembered when the birthing of the glorification is upon us. It'll be, oh yeah, I remember there was, there was a pain or there was a, a longing back then. But it's nearly forgotten to me now. Look at the joy. And this will be a joy that doesn't fade. She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Boy, has the world forgotten that joy. I heard MacArthur say the other day that Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who came out and used the word of God to support um, a woman's right to abortion, is like Herod of old killing the children in, in, in Bethlehem. Just making a way, making it, making it uh, almost a sacrament. Using the word of God to sanctify that. What an evil. Friends, this is where we are. Some of the details were revealed to the apostle John. And he writes this. Then I, John, I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. God can show visions to his prophet because these things are already designed. They're already known. They're already orchestrated in the pattern of eternity that God will play out over time. <coughs> And I heard a loud voice from heaven. There's the voice. Behold, the voice said, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Who cannot long for a time when there's no more pain? Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That not willingly really moves me to some extent because I picture Eve in the garden being tempted to reach out and the tree knew more of that sin than she did. The tree didn't believe the lie. If it could have recoiled back its fruit, it would have, and it would have warned her. But she was lord over the trees, as the emissary of her husband, Lord Adam. Creation didn't ask for futility. Man did. It was thrust upon creation unwillingly, the, the uh, apostle says. I wonder if the tree of life was more conscious of the sin than the woman who reached and plucked its fruit. 
As man is in bondage to sin, creation is in bondage to corruption. Can you imagine? If you can personify this to its logical extreme, you could think the tree must have been saying, no, no, don't you remember the word of God? This is but a liar, an interloper who got into the garden. So the man is in bondage to sin since that time, and corruption is in bondage, or rather creation, is in bondage to corruption. As our bodies go into the earth from which they came and see corruption, so does all creation see corruption. Creation is subject to futility, which means vanity, emptiness. Friends, that is theology. That is divine revelation from God. That's divine theology. That creation is suffering and decaying. That creation is getting better and natural life forms with it. That's human theory. That's called evolution, friends. The idea that things are getting better. Yeah, man is not good right now, but he's getting better. And someday, if we can only keep going, we will, in, we will evolve into these greater beings. I really think people that are of pure religion in this sense, right, believe that man, in conjunction with certain um, technological changes and additions, you know, bionic man, I think they believe that they'll actually create the great immortal universe when man won't strive anymore. Do you ever realize what I call the myth of progress? Do you remember, maybe you're not old enough to remember, I remember when everyone having a dishwasher would give them so much extra time. <laughs> and having a refrigerator where you keep the food, you don't have to shop every day, all this extra time, you have a car, you don't have to walk or feed the ox before you hop in the cart. You can zoom over, zoom back, and all this extra time because the, the progress was, this was all progress. You had all these appliances on your countertops. I can't believe the infomercials today that want to fill our countertops with all these things that I hope you know you'll use once. You know? Emerald's new oven. Every time I see Emerald advertising the new oven, Karen goes, my oven does all that. I, I don't understand. I guess we're old-fashioned. <laughs> But let me tell you, there's a myth of progress, friend. Who has all this extra time? I want to meet that person. Friends, creation didn't ask for futility. It was thrust upon it unwillingly. As our bodies go into the earth from which they came and see corruption, to so does all creation see corruption. And evolution is not only bad theory, it's not only bad theology, it's bad science, friends. <clears throat> and Mark, I'm going, to ask, I'm going to ask if you would leave for this part. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Mark's a great scientist, and we have some great conversations on these things. Evolution teaches that mostly biological entities naturally select themselves out of their immediate imperfections and begin to improve indefinitely. In other words, evolution is a science that denies not only the word of God, but other scientific laws and observations. Entropy. Some say entropy, some say entropy. Entropy is the name of the process that all things are not getting better but are breaking down. All right? And the definition is this. Entropy, and it's a very simple definition. I want everyone to remember this. Entropy is a thermodynamic quantity representing the unavailability of a system's thermal energy for conversion into mechanical work, often interpreted as the degree of disorder or randomness in the system. You got that? The second law of thermodynamics says that entropy always increases with time. In other words, disorder is always happening in time. Things don't get better, they get worse and more dissolute. MacArthur makes it a little more understandable. He writes this, In physics, the law of entropy refers to the constant and irreversible degradation of matter and energy in the universe to increasing disorder. That scientific law clearly contradicts the theory of evolution, which is based on the premise that the natural world is inclined to continual self-improvement. But it's evident, he goes on, in a simple garden plot, when it is untended, it deteriorates. All right, who has the gardens? <laughs> I have a garden, kajampas, chicks, listies, we all have these gardens. But, who had, but because we don't have all this time that our dishwashers and our little air fryers bought for us, we don't get to tend the garden every day. In the summer, in midsummer, it takes like one day, and the weeds are bigger than everything else. And when you go out in that garden, what do you have to do? You sweat and you toil. 
You should have tended the garden, but now you toil in the garden. I have to remember, I, I, when I first became a Christian, I was a, I was a carpenter, I was on the job. And, you know, the days in summer can be very hot. And we didn't have... I go back before pneumatic tools. <laughs> they were in existence, but nobody used them. And, you know, so we would nail down plywood to a floor deck. You take little nails out of your, out of your pouch and you go through. Today, you just boom, 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 and it's all done. So I remember nailing down this floor. And you'd sit, you'd either kneel or bend over in one place, and you'd nail a nail and nail a nail. And they have to be every five or six inches, right? And I looked down, and there was this puddle from my face. And I'd move over here, and I'd nail, nail, nail on this joint, and there'd be this puddle from my face. And I was thinking of the curse. There was a time when this would have been a little more joyful than that. I digress, I know. But, um, and so, friends, real science is the friend of the Word of God. And the Word, rightly understood, should always be able to stand under the scrutiny of science rightly applied. The problem is, what passes for science today, remember, believe the science. Now you got those same people saying what we knew just by guessing. Believe the science. Whenever they say believe the science, you can't worship God, you've got to know something's afoot there, Right? According to evolution, everything is progressing and developing, Lloyd-Jones this time, and advancing. Those who hold that theory would have us believe that the present state of affairs as regards man, and indeed the whole of life, is only an intermediate one, and that things as they are are are, things are as they are because we have only advanced to this particular stage of development. But the Apostle's teaching is the exact, exact opposite of that theory, he writes, and that the present calamitous condition of the world is the result of the fall and is getting worse, not better. So we have human theory. We have divine theology. And then we have human science that that defies some of human theory. Evolution contains within its theoretical postulates that the human condition is improving. We're getting better as a race and as a species. Our theology leads us away from the predictions of the theory. God, from the very beginning, cursed sinful man and creation with him. And yet our verse is not complete apart from its final two words. The final two words I left out of verse 20, in hope. And so the verse is completed in this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so we see the character of God in all this entropy. We see that with the curse, there is always the promise. With the curse was the hope of blessing. With the eviction from the garden was the hope of return. There is a promise of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. There is a promise that man will be ultimately glorified and returned again into that glorified earth. And though God cursed all of creation due to the sin of the man, it is in the character of God to always include a way out. There is present with the curse a future hope. There is with paradise lost the hope of paradise regained. And so I give a nod to the great Puritan poet John Milton. With the paradise lost, there is the hope of paradise regained. God cursed the very ground and he said it to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for for you and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust thou art and to dust thou shalt return. And so is the curse. But God was not finished speaking. And he said this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good from evil, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And he talked about the heel of the Savior bruising the head of the serpent. And so there was always, and there always is in the character of God, hope even in the cursed moment. There's always a way out with the Lord. 
And so all the human race since Adam's eviction and all of creation with him was thrust into futility and corruption, but not without hope, never without hope. In verse 23, the apostle writes, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul knows that we're saved. He knows that we believe everything he's teaching us here. But he also knows that in the frailty of the moment, because we only have that foretaste of glorification, we only have that down payment, if you will, that we do still sorrow in this world. And we sorrow for those who have no hope as well as for ourselves when we are suffering. Now, we've traveled here before in our series. The apostle speaks of the first fruits. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. And though the reference means different things in different contexts, here it speaks of that blessed foretaste of redemption. This is why we can glory in this presentation. We can delight in hearing it. Because in our souls, we not only believe it, we know that it's true. And we know because the Holy Spirit is in us. This will be next week, right? making intercession between us and God, praying for us for things that cannot be uttered by us because we haven't the revelation or the intelligence right now to utter them. So the Holy Spirit prays through us, and he is in us witnessing of that joy even in the sorrow. We are connected to God through the gift of the Spirit. And though the reference means different things, Here it means the foretaste of redemption. We should be tasting it now with the proclamation of the word. We should rejoice in the proclamation of God's word. We should taste it in the fellowship of the saints. It should give you pleasure to speak of these things with other Christians. We should know something of it in private prayer. Friends, these are not the days to forego private prayer. Find a place, a time, a schedule, and go there and pray and pour out your heart to God and be like Jacob. Don't come back until he blesses you. Don't let go until he blesses you. Wrestle with God. And certainly our worship services should bring us into the presence of God. And the presence of God should be tasted in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit who is in us now. He's part of that foretaste. He's part of that guarantee. He's the thing within us that makes us realize that everything this apostle says about glorification is true and can be relied on. So comfort one another with these words, he said. Notice he said one another. That's because the brethren give comfort to one another because we all have a foretaste of that same comforting promise that we'll be glorified together with creation. We've been given a taste, a glimpse, a down payment, if you will. Luther would have us sing of it. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We have the words, friends. We have the spirit. We have the church. The church is a great gift to God's people. Don't try to be a Christian in this fallen world without the church. And the church has the spiritual gifts. Don't try to be the church without using the spiritual gifts within her that God graciously provided to edify us. Everything we need to hold on to hope is within us. Just as Eden provided for Adam, so the church provides for the saints. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, give us great revelation of the truth of the ultimate glorification of man and the whole created order with us. And let us be united to Christ and to one another in these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.